So we're starting a summer series this morning, um, and um, what that up and down a little bit. Um, our series this summer that we're going to do together is it's going to be a selection of psalms. Um, you know, the psalms are a collection of prayers, the songs of God's people, and you may or may not know, uh, but the the psalms are actually divided into five distinct books. And so this summer, what we're going to do is we're going to take a selection from book one in the Psalms, and that'll be our our series. Um, And very predictably, this morning, we're going to start with Psalm one. Where else do you start? Um, But that's, of course, in book one. But Psalm one is unique uh, in another way in that it is the gateway into the entire book of Psalms. And so it introduces all of the Psalms for us. And Before I read this short psalm, let me just mention something so that you can be, I guess, listening for it as I read the psalm. Uh, It's a short psalm, uh, six verses. Um, But this psalm is really saying uh, the main thing for you to figure out in life is are you blessed? Are you a blessed man or blessed woman? That this psalm describes. Uh, blessed, it's the very first word in the psalm. And if that's unfamiliar language to you, you're not usually walking around talking about blessed. Um, you could also translate that word happy. Um, but it's not, we need to be clear about this. It, it's not talking about a fleeting, momentary happiness that's based on whether or not you have good circumstances in your life at the particular moment. Um, It's talking about real, solid, objective, true happiness. Think in terms of the deepest kind of satisfaction, um, ultimate fulfillment, abiding joy and holiness. Psalm 1 is saying the search and the hunger and the thirst for that kind of happiness, it is the deep thing that is driving all of our lives. And until we get it, nothing else matters. Okay, so follow along with me in your bulletin and I'll read for us Psalm 1. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. the very first words of the Bible remind us that when you open your mouth to speak, you call everything into being. And that is the power of your voice. 
Father, we pray that You would allow us to hear Your voice with that kind of power this morning. The same power that when Your Son walked to this earth, He spoke and by the power of His voice, the blind were made to see, the deaf were made to hear, the lame were made to walk, and even the dead were raised to life. Father, would You please, by Your Spirit, allow us to hear Your Word with that kind of power this morning. Wake us up where we need to be awoken. Comfort us where we need it. Rebuke and challenge us. Call us to faith and life in Jesus, we pray. For it's in His name we ask these things. Amen. Last year, uh, the band U2 went on tour and they were celebrating their 30th anniversary of the release of their album, The Joshua Tree. And maybe I had a number of friends that traveled down to New Orleans to see them. Maybe some of you did. Um, But one of the great songs on that album was the song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Um, And some of the lines go like this. I've climbed the highest mountains. I've run through the fields only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips, felt the healing in the fingertips. It burned like fire. I've spoke with the tongue of angels, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Bono, he's singing about the hunger and thirst for deep and true happiness that Psalm 1 is talking about. Um, But he's also saying... The deepest desires and hopes of his heart can't be found in this world. Right? That's the refrain. I I still haven't found what I'm looking for. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that we're, we're not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. And so he says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. And then Lewis wrote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. After, um, this is an old clip, you can find it on YouTube, but after... NFL quarterback Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl. Um, So again, it was a little while ago. But he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And he's got all this fame, all this fortune, all this success, all his greatest dreams have been achieved. And what he said in that interview was this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life, and I think, God, it's got to be more than this. If I find in myself a desire which no, no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The truth is that this, the hunger and the desire for deep happiness um, it's turned many of us cynical because we feel like we can't get our hands on it in this life. But Psalm 1 is pushing back against the cynicism that we feel 
uh, with incredibly good news. Because what Psalm 1 is saying, Psalm 1 is saying, that deep desire that you have for satisfaction and happiness that nothing in this world can fully satisfy, it can be found and had. Right? So that's what this psalm is about. Now, here are my three points. For you to find true happiness, uh, first, you have to be nourished by a source outside of you. And for you to tr- find true happiness, second, you have to be captivated by a story of ultimate beauty. And third, for you to find true happiness, you have to make a choice. You have to be nourished by a source outside of you. You have to be captivated by a story of ultimate beauty. And you have to make a choice. So first, you find this happiness when you're nourished by a source outside of you. And here's what I'm going to do just to let you know. Um, I'm going to spend the majority of my time on this point, And then the other two will go pretty quickly. So if you get anxious, um, that it, it'll pick up speed. Um, but listen... You are designed, and I'm designed this way, we're put together in such a way that you are meant to find your identity outside of yourself. Um, And only when you find your identity outside of yourself does your identity and consequently your joy and your peace and your happiness in this life become untouchable by any of life's circumstances. And only when you find your identity outside of yourself are you finally in this life set free to struggle instead of constantly struggling to get free. Let me show you. What we're talking about is absolutely countercultural. Okay, Everything around us, everything around us says that the only way to find happiness and joy and contentment is by looking inside yourself. And Psalm 1 says to find true happiness, you have to find nourishment. You have to find your life. You have to find your identity outside of you. See, in verse 3, the psalmist uses this metaphor of a tree planted by streams of water to describe the blessed man, this man who's found true happiness. And the Hebrew word picture there is of a tree that has been uprooted from one place and planted by a stream of constantly flowing water. No longer does this tree have to rely on rain to find its nourishment. It's planted by the stream and its roots are receiving a constant supply of nourishment. But though this is the environment that causes the tree's life to flourish, um, I know that you've probably noticed this in the natural world, Trees don't normally dig up their own roots and go in search of streams and plant themselves by it, right? The tree is dependent on someone outside of it to come and dig it up and move it and put it by the streams of water. And listen, a Christian is someone someone whose life has been interrupted by someone from the outside and planted in grace. A Christian is someone who finds life by looking outside of themselves, not within themselves. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, we tried to employ a certain psychology on the playground um, that in the end did not help very much. 
But we would say things like, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, Maybe you've said some of those things. But then we grew up, and we realized what a lie that was, right? Because the truth is that sticks and stones may break my bones, but my bones will heal. But harsh and cutting and belittling words spoken to me from the outside, they will kill me. They will echo into my life for years after my bones have healed. I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks on you. It's sad how I remember these. Um, Had a rough time on the playground. Um, But the truth is, right, whatever you say to me, it doesn't bounce off of me. It doesn't. It, It sticks like poisonous daggers deep into my soul. Not long ago, my wife and I were in the car and we were listening to a podcast and um, it was about a girl who was bullied at an all-girls prep school in Montreal 30 years ago. Um, And in that podcast, she was, the way that she was wondering about how different her life might have been if she had confronted those bullies 30 years ago. You, you, know what, you know what it made me think? It, meant, it made me think how she saw her whole life shaped and determined and defined by words spoken to her 30 years ago. And the people in this room, myself included, we're no different. Words from the outside, whether they're spoken by friends or bullies or parents or teachers or coaches or whatever, 30, 40 years removed for some of us. They're often still shaping us, lingering in our lives in the form of shame and insecurity and resentment and fear. And our culture's response, for the most part, is to say, you need to look within to find your true value." You need to look within to find your true beauty, to look inside to find your your happiness and your wholeness, right, in your life. But if you're made to find your identity outside of yourself, it'll never work. And let me tell you why. This is why you can say to yourself a thousand times a day, I'm great. I'm enough. I'm pretty. But one person whose opinion you value comes along, maybe it's a spouse or a friend or a boss, and they can say to you one time that you're a disappointment, that you're not enough, that you're ugly. And in the blink of an eye, your thousand self-affirmations throughout the day are gone with the wind. And I'm asking the question, what if your life could be interrupted by someone from the outside? And what if that someone's opinion of you truly mattered and you could trust that voice? And what if that voice proclaimed with certainty to you that you are a treasure and that you are loved and that you are enough and that you're beautiful? Think about the imagery of this song. Words like that, if you could get them said about you, They would wash over you like streams of living water and give you life. They would have the power to undo all kinds of brokenness in your life. 
If you have those words spoken to you and about you from the outside, your identity could become untouchable by life circumstances. You wouldn't have to be defensive. right? You could hear criticism without being crushed by it. You could be praised without becoming arrogant. You could stop using and manipulating others to prop up your self-image and actually love and serve other people. If those words could wash over you like streams of living water, rooted and nourished, stable, that's what the blessed man is. But the wicked Psalm 1 tells us in verse 4, they're like chaff. They're blown away by the wind, unable to stand in the judgment, verse 5. If words of grace and assurance of love were nourishing you at the roots of your life, at the core of who you are, you would become untouchable. And what's more, you would finally be free to struggle instead of, constant, instead of this constant, exhausting, struggling to get free in life. Several years ago, I saw an interview with basketball great Bill Russell. Um, if you don't know who that was, um, sorry. Um, he was a great basketball player in the NBA. Played on back-to-back college championship teams, I think, at UCLA. Played on 11 NBA championship teams. Was 12 times an NBA All-Star, 5 times an NBA MVP. And on and on we could go. But he was, the reason I saw this interview was, it's later in his life as an old man, he's being interviewed because he had received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, with all of his awards that he had received throughout his lifetime, I mean, it was obvious when you were watching this interview that this one, I mean, he was especially proud of it. He was just glowing as he was being interviewed. And so the interview, na- interviewer naturally asked him if this was the greatest honor of his life compared to all his other many honors that he had received. And this is what he said. I wrote it down. He said, no. It's a close second, though. And then he said this. He was about 75 or 76 when my father said to me one day, you know, I'm proud of you. And I'm proud that you're my son. And I'm also just as proud that I'm your father. And Russell said, you cannot top that. The unbelievable power of words spoken from the outside Words of approval and delight and love and acceptance. If we could let our guards down just for a moment, could we just admit together that we are are desperate for words like that? You know, Jesus heard words like that in his life. You remember this, this scene when he was baptized in the Jordan River by John? His father was beaming in delight over, and pride over him. And he said, audibly, from the outside, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Gosh, if we could get those words said about us, we would know true happiness. We could finally rest. Right? We would know ultimate fulfillment and abiding joy and peace. And most of us, we spend all of our energy struggling to get those words said about us. We try to earn them from our spouses, 
We try to get them by being the perfect parent, as if such a thing existed. Right? We chase those words in achievements in our careers or in the approval of others. We're struggling to be free. But to have your life interrupted from the outside, to find yourself planted by grace, is to become aware that Jesus came into this world to live and die for you. So that God Himself could say to you those same exact words He said about His Son. That in Jesus, He looks at you and He says, this is my son, my daughter, whom I love, with him or with her. I'm well pleased. Your identity is in Jesus. And therefore, untouchable and unshakable. And you no longer have to struggle to get free. You are now free to struggle. Fully loved and entirely accepted. Free to struggle to become who you were meant to be in Jesus. So that's first. Remember, that was the longest point. So these are the ones you're hearing go quicker. To find true happiness, you have to be nourished by the source outside of you. Okay, second, you find this true happiness when you're captivated by a story of ultimate beauty. So verse 2 tells, tells us this about the blessed man. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. Uh, for many of us, we see that word law, and we think what? We think rules, all right? But often, you need to know that the Bible uses the word law in a much broader sense. And really to talk about the whole story of God's word. And that's exactly what's happening here in Psalm 1. The psalmist isn't saying, blessed is the man who loves rules. He's saying, the happy man or the happy woman is captivated by the story of the Bible. By the story of God's redemption. Captivated by the story of ultimate beauty. Bear with me just for a second. Author G.K. Chesterton wrote about how there's a story underneath all of our fairy tales. He wrote, there's the lesson of beauty and the beast. That a thing must be loved before it is lovable. He goes on, there's the terrible allegory of the sleeping beauty which tells us how the human creature was blessed with all birthday gifts, yet cursed with death, but how death also may perhaps be softened to a sleep from which you awake. You know, we watch a lot of Disney at our house, um, and there's a reason that those fairy tales last. It's because they're touching a truth. They're touching upon ultimate beauty. Right. Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella's, the hope that poor mistreated cinder girls could one day become Cinderella's and live happily ever after, uh, that frozen hearts right, could really and truly be thawed and set free by sacrificial love. Oh, lots of Disney at our house. But another author, Tolkien, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, the Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essences of fairy stories. See, if you're following me, in the end, Chesterton and Tolkien were saying the same thing. They were saying the Gospel isn't one more fairy tale pointing to ultimate beauty. 
What they're saying is the gospel is the ultimate beauty to which every fairy tale points in some way. So what does it mean to be captivated by the story of ultimate beauty? It's more than just knowing the facts of God's story of redemption. It's having the story capture the imagination of your heart. It's moving beyond information to true delight. Listen, when I was in college, I was a biology major. And it's not helping me at all right now, but I learned real quick that it, it wasn't going to require me to be smart to be a biology major. What it was going to require of me was that I memorize lots of information and can regurgitate it on a test, right? And then forget it all. Um, And you probably remember at some point in your life learning information like that. But truth like that, truth as information, it never changes you. Right? It doesn't inspire you. It doesn't fill your life with joy and delight. Verse 2 tells us that this blessed man delights and meditates on God's word day and night. To meditate is to reflect deeply. It's to let that truth engage your imagination, to ponder how you can get in line with that beauty right? that you see. It's to ask, how would my life be different if I actually believed this? How would it change me to know that the Bible is a story of God's never giving up, never stopping, and unbreaking love for me? How would it change me to know that God orchestrated all of history to send His Son just at the right time to die for me? How would it change me to know that I'm really free, that all my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven at the cross What does it mean that my heart can be thawed by this story of ultimate sacrificial love? What does it mean that I'm loved before I become lovable? To truly be changed, to find true happiness, this ultimate story of beauty, it has to be needed and worked into the deepest and darkest corners of our hearts. Preacher G. Campbell Morgan once told a story about visiting an old grave site of um, an incredibly wealthy man, and his grave is marked by this humongous, thick marble slab. But over time, that slab had been cracked in half and rolled off the grave site. Um, how, how did that happen? When they were burying the man, one little acorn fell into the grave, right into the deep dark soil, but over time it sprouted and started to grow out one of the sides from underneath the marble, and it took years and years. But eventually that one little, tiny little acorn had the power to crack that huge, thick marble slab. For the ultimate beauty of the gospel to change you and to change you from the inside out, to give you the deep happiness and joy that you were made for, it has to be worked deep into your heart. It has to be taken down to the deepest, darkest places of your heart and down into those places where you think, if I could just be this, if I could just achieve that, if I could only earn that, then I would be happy. But when that ultimate beauty gets all the way in there and the gospel gets that deep into your heart, it has the power crack the hardness of your heart. To crack the thick, hard slab that's covering your heart. 
And you will find a resource in your life for true and deep happiness. Okay, finally, and even briefer than the last point, you find true happiness by making a choice. For all that Psalm 1 says, it's saying you have to make a choice. Right? Technically, Psalm 1 fits into this category uh, of, called wisdom literature. And it's a, it's a wisdom psalm. So Psalm 1, what it's doing is it's pushing us for a decision. A choice. It's saying there are really only two options for you in life. We are either like the blessed man or we are like the wicked man. There isn't a third option. There's not a position of neutrality open to you. To not choose is to choose is what the psalmist is saying. It's pushing each and every one of us to make a choice. This is how the psalm begins, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers. There's a ton we could say about that verse. It's talking about the progressive nature of sin, the progressive hardening of the heart. But it's also saying that the blessed man, the happy man, makes a choice. And it's not that the blessed man makes a choice to be good, And the wicked man makes a choice to be bad. It's that the blessed man flees every other functional Lord and Savior in his life for the one Lord and Savior that can give him an unshakable identity. He makes a choice to rest in God's grace. To meditate and find his deepest delight in God's story of redemption. If we could be honest just for a moment, Psalm 1 is pushy. Right? It's saying there's only two options. And the main thing for you to figure out in your life is, are you blessed? It's pushy. And I'll bet when you open your Bibles and you read the Gospels in the New Testament, and if you read them honestly, you'll see the same thing about Jesus. That He seems a little pushy at times. Like He's always pushing people to make a choice. Read through the Gospels. No one ever listened to Jesus preach and then shook his hand on the way out and said, good sermon, preacher, and then went on with his life unaffected. Right? He was constantly pushing people off the fence. He was constantly saying, you can love me or hate me. You can crown me or kill me. You can reject me or follow me, but the one thing you absolutely cannot be is indifferent to me. There is no third option. In fact, I'm going to end here with a story about Jesus from the Gospel that I think fits really well with Psalm 1. It's a story that's found in John chapter 4 when Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, if you want to read it later. Um, But from a simple conversation about water from a well, Jesus just kept pushing. He kept confronting pushing her off the fence, pushing her to make a choice. He was asking her, do you see the emptiness of your life? Do you realize how deep the thirst is in your life? And he points it out to her. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. He's saying you're obviously searching for life, for happiness, for deep fulfillment. Don't you see it? Deep within you, you have a desire within you which no experience in this world has satisfied or ever can satisfy. You've been searching, but you haven't found what you're looking for, is what Jesus is telling her. What was he telling her in that story? He was, telling, he was saying, you can either keep coming back to this well, 
and stay thirsty forever? That's one option. Or I can give you water. I can give you living water. Streams of living water that you can draw on and never be thirsty again. Those are your two options. There isn't a third option available to you. To, to not choose is to choose. How is it that Jesus can... We'll end here. How is it that Jesus can make this kind of offer to the Samaritan woman? How is it that Jesus can make this kind of offer to you this morning? That if we come to rest in Him and His grace, He will meet our deepest needs and deepest desires for satisfaction. It's because of what He came to do for us and in our place. I mean, you think about this. As He hung on the cross in our place, He was intolerably thirsty. I mean, He was parched for us. The psalmist later on says He was poured out like a drink offering for us. On the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And like chaff, He was blown away by God's justice for us. And when He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, He assured us that His Father now looks at us objectively in Him and says, this is my son or my daughter whom I love. With her or with him, I am well pleased. To find this ultimate happiness, you have to be nourished by a source outside of you. You have to be captivated by the story of ultimate beauty that is the gospel. And you have to make a choice. Let's pray together.